Well, would you turn with me tonight to Psalm 92? It is good to give thanks to Yahweh and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night, with the ten-stringed lute and with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre. For you, O Yahweh, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. How great are your works, O Yahweh! Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man does not know, and a fool does not understand this. That when the wicked flourished like grass, and all the workers of iniquity blossomed, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. But you are on high forever, O Yahweh. For behold, your enemies, O Yahweh, for behold, your enemies will perish. All the workers of iniquity will be scattered. But you have raised up my horn like that of a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil, and my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of Yahweh. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield, yield fruit in old age. They shall be rich and fresh to declare that Yahweh is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Amen. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord God, Yahweh, we pause to thank you for um, all of your word and we thank you for the Psalms in particular, uh, really the hymn book of the Bible And we pray that tonight as we meditate for a few moments together on this particular psalm, that you would give us understanding and open our hearts and our minds. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the titles to these psalms are not Incidental, They are important, and particularly in this psalm, it gives us some context that this hymn, a psalm, was originally composed to be sung and to be used on the Sabbath in Israel and in Judah. Uh, That does help us understand that the Sabbath, the day of rest in the Old Testament, was not merely a day to be sitting around doing nothing and and it wasn't designed to make uh, wiggly little boys miserable. Um, I, I remember I, I've shared this story, but maybe you forget my stories if I don't tell them in a long time. But I do remember as a boy uh, and living down in Derry, and my brother and I, we were little, and Rumney Bible Conference, uh, mom and dad would want to go up there every once in a while if a certain preacher was in town. And on a particular few occasions, I remember going up right after church in the morning, and then going up uh, for lunch there. But the only thing was, when you went there, they had a rule back in those days that you couldn't ride your bike on Sunday, and you couldn't do, you couldn't have that that pole with that ball swinging around, and you couldn't hit that. And well, frankly, as a little boy, you thought you couldn't do anything fun whatsoever. And uh, well, that that's that's not what the day of the Lord, the Sabbath, was meant for. Um, It was meant for, yes, rest. It was to picture and remind that it was not by works, but by grace that Israel, Judah, and all of us are saved. 
It's God's work, not ours. And that we, they, they rested one day out of seven. It really was Israel's sign of their covenant with God. The Sabbath for Israel was a covenant sign, unique in particular to Israel. Our church does not teach that Sunday is the Sabbath. That is a point of earnest uh, contention among God-loving, Christ-honoring brothers and sisters in Christ. But we are told in the New Testament that the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, is an important day. In the church, historically, it's been, well, first of all, in biblically, it's the first day of the week when Christ rose from the dead. And it is on the first day of the week that Christians have met uh, since the earliest days of the church. And while we may not teach that the Lord's Day is the Sabbath day, that there's a direct correlation there, there certainly are, uh, there are, certainly are uh, comparisons and things that we can learn. And whether it be the Sabbath or the Lord's Day, they are both characterized by days of worship. So the Sabbath in the Old Testament was not merely a day of not working, it was a day of praise. So this psalm was a song written, composed for the Sabbath day. Now the general statement is declared in verse 1. Here's, here is the general statement that the whole psalm illustrates. It is good, that Hebrew word tov, tov. You have to say B and V kind of together, and by no means am I uh, correct in, in my Hebrew pronunciation. But I do know that Tov, T-O-B, that B in, in Hebrew has a little bit of V to it. So I, like, I just like that word, it's tov, it's, it's good. Um, if you taste something that's really yummy, like honey, or uh, I had uh, this afternoon for lunch, uh, as part of the lunch, Carissa had made these wonderful biscuits last night, and uh, I, I had some maple cream on those biscuits, and I'm telling you, it was tov. It was tov. That's good. It's good. Makes your face smile. Uh, grin ear to ear. So, so here the statement in verse 1 is, it is good, good, like substantially good. Not just morally good. It is morally good, but it is, it is experientially good. It is good all around to give thanks to the Lord, to Yahweh, and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. So this psalm, like most psalms, is about the Lord. It's about God. He is Yahweh, that is his covenant name with his people, and he is the Most High. He is El Elyon, El Yon, the God Most High. There's no one, no other creature, there's no other being higher than God, certainly, for he is the creator over all. So we can divide up the psalm into two sections, really, verses 1 through 4 and then verses 5 through 15. And verses 1 through 4, we learn the goodness of Yahweh's praise or the Lord's praise, the goodness of the Lord's praise. Verses 5 through 14, we are are told and we learn the grounds for the Lord's praise or the reasons, if you will, the reasons for the Lord's praise. And this is typical in the Psalms. They'll, the psalmist will make a declaration. We're going to praise you, Lord. We're going to sing, declare your great name. And, and then we're going to say, why? Why are we going to praise God? What reason is there for giving praise to God? And that, that is the outline of the psalm. I want to spend a few moments, very important. Verses 1 to 4 are rather unique 
in scripture and in the Psalter. Um, I don't know if it's of any interest to you, but, but Psalm 92 verses 1 to 4 is part of the reasoning in my mind, in my heart, as to why we have an evening service. And I'm serious about that. And I've held that conviction for many years. Part of what informs the idea historically of believers meeting on the Lord's Day in the morning and the evening is this fact declared in verse 2. That it's good to declare God's loving kindness in the morning and his faithfulness by night. Uh, not too many other psalms talk about that. So it's, it's unique. So let's look together at verses 1 through 4 at the goodness of the Lord's praise. Uh, first, in these first four verses, the content of God's praise is, is thanks and praise. I mean, that's, uh, I'm being a little bit redundant there, but uh, the thanks, what is that? Um, thanks is recognizing what God has done for us. There is a distinguishing between thanks and praise. They're not synonymous. They have, a, they have a overlap. Um, we thank God for things that we also praise him for, but there is a distinguishing before, between thanks and praise. When we praise God, we first praise him because he, of who he is objectively, of who he is irrespective of us, irrespective of, of what he's done towards us. In other words, God is praiseworthy God was worthy of praise before he ever made one of the angels or men and women who actually praise him, right? He's praiseworthy because of just who he is. He is God. He is most high. All of his character, his holiness, his love, his goodness, his attributes, every aspect of him, we, when we praise him, we are praising God because of who he objectively is. Of course, we can praise him as well for what he has done, but then we begin moving over a little bit more into thanks. When we, when we give thanks to God, in other words, you don't thank God for being God. I mean, I suppose you could, but you don't thank God for um, being sovereign. There's nothing to thank him for. He just is. In other words, he, he didn't do something, if you will, to be sovereign. He just is sovereign, so you praise him for it. You thank him for things he has done for us. Actions, deeds, thoughts, all that he's done. So there's, there's a bit of a distinction between thanks and praise. But it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to recognize what he's done for us. I mean, he created us. He made us. He, uh, he feeds us. He clothes us. He gives us uh, loving people in our lives. He, he most of all, of course, uh, sent his son to live for us and to die for us and to rise for us. He sent his spirit to, to redeem, to, to regenerate us as we learned this morning. So on and on it goes. We should never be short on reasons to thank God. If we're short on reasons to thank God, we, we've literally forgot who God is and who we are. Um, we should be able to just, what can I give thanks to God for? What can I give thanks to God for? Where do you want to start? Um, we give thanks to God and we sing praises to his name. His name is, is not only Yahweh, not only Jesus. His name is his character and all that he is. So the content is thanks and praise. That, that's what's good, to thank him and to praise him. The time, notice in verse 2, is morning and evening. 
mourning, that's the time. I mean, there's a, to declare his hesed, that his loving kindness, that his covenant love for his people. This is the love with which the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God. This is the love of Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That love is this hesed, this, this covenant love, this gracious love. And so it is good to declare his love in the morning and his faithfulness at or by night, the whole of the day. Now, I want to dwell here for a little minute, for a moment. And I will say at the outset, my purpose is not to teach somehow that biblical churches must have an evening worship service on the Lord's Day. I, I don't believe that. I don't, that's not my conviction. I think your church can be a God-loving, Christ-preaching, exalting church and happen, for whatever reason, not to have a worship service on a Sunday evening. All right? I just want to be clear about that. And, and, we must, I think, acknowledge that in the day and age we live in among Christians, if you tell someone that you're having an evening worship service, I think I'm being fair when I suggest that the general thought among most is, why? Okay. You have an evening service? Oh. I'm, what I mean by this, is I, I literally think that people don't know what to do with it. I, I don't think that there's any, any... I don't think there's much thought as to why that might be something you want to do. And I find that alarming. Alarming. And that is a good, healthy sign that professing Christians generally in our day have slipped into the kind of legalistic ritualism that we've been learning of in Zechariah chapter 7, that we go to church Sunday morning and we want maybe an expository sermon, but we, we really are going. Why are we going? Because, you know, that's what you do if you're a Christian. But at the heart of it is God asked the people, right, the, the delegates, uh, that from Bethel to Jerusalem in all those years, was it for me? And the fact that there's so little understanding of why you might even have a worship service any other time than Sunday morning, I think, I could be wrong. I've been wrong a lot in my life. But I suspect, knowing my own heart, I have a heart as corrupt as anybody else's, but I suspect it's because in our day, we're not so sure anymore it is good to give thanks to the Lord to declare his loving kindness in the morning and his faithfulness at night. We've got, we've got our praise into a very specific little box in the set time, and, and if you move outside of that, well, why would you do that? I'm not concerned, firstly, about the, the practice. I'm concerned about the heart. You see? And, and there was a time, and, and, well, I'll say this. It's interesting, and this is true in the Bible and all throughout history. Every time you find a revival, 
you find the people of God, the people of Christ, essentially saying to the preachers and the pastors, one service will not do, sir. We want more word and we want more opportunity to praise God. So get to work and open the word and teach it to us and lead us in praise. That happens in every revival. You see a, mul- a, a desire for a multiplying. Why? Because, well, people are legalistic and they need to have church on morning. And- no, because they are agreement with the psalmist. They want to declare his love in the morning and his faithfulness at night. So... It has more to do with who God is than any kind of practice or routine. Does, does this make sense? I, I hope it's helpful. So, so we just need to say in a day and age that scratches its head as to why you would worship God or praise God at any time outside of Sunday morning, we need to say, well, because it's good. <laughs> it's good. It's good to praise the Lord. If you want to praise the Lord on a Tuesday night, I remember, and some of you do, I remember, again, as a boy, it's a strange thing in these days, and I know Ed remembers, but I know I remember days, weeks, when we would have missions conferences or other times, and there would be preaching on nearly every night of the week, and I'm sure it was exhausting, but I remember my parents bringing my brother and I in our, our little sleep, uh, sleeper pajamas, you know, those ones with the footies, and I mean, we, my parents would bring us right to church in those, and we'd be there for the singing, and right about the time the guy stood up to talk like I am, we'd be laid out flat on on the pews and falling asleep and that was fine but but people wanted to go to church they wanted to sing the praises and so what time is it it's not just for Sunday morning that's a good time I love Sunday mornings but it is good to give thanks to the Lord in the morning and the night and every time in between because of who he is so the content, thanks and praise, the time, morning and evening, and any and all times. The accompaniment, interesting, verse 3. Now this is, this is mentioned frequently in the Psalms. There's some instruments uh, here, and we don't have a ten-stringed lute. Um, kind of, I suppose, like an ancient guitar. A harp, you know what a harp is. Uh, a lyre is, a, is an ancient instrument. Um, so they had instruments. And uh, the accompaniment, I want you to notice here that that's part of the Holy Spirit-given text. It's good to praise God and thank God accompanied with ten-stringed lutes and harps. And does that mean that we've got to do a a study and find ten-string lutes and harps and lyres if we are to be really biblical? No. But it means that God made accompaniment. God made musical instruments and it is absolutely appropriate for us to use them. We have a piano, and uh, it may be in the future that we add some more instruments uh, to accompany, not to take over, but to accompany the singing and the praise of God's people. And I want you to notice in verse 3, it's to be resounding. Now, I don't know, sometimes people get the idea that the more godly a church is, or godly the praise is, the, the the less accompaniment there'll be, and uh, it certainly won't be resounding. And sometimes, I don't know, I think, folks, uh, this is one of those New Testament, Old Testament things, and some, some are of the persuasion that instrumentation was for, the, for Israel of old, and that in the New Testament, we, we don't find the church, uh, you know, having any instruments. And so there, there has been, certainly in history, uh, in, in, uh, in especially Presbyterianism in Scotland and so forth, um, really a lot of strict singing of the Psalms with no instrumentation. 
Now, that, that can be beautiful. I, I've heard, you've maybe heard that as well. It can be beautiful, and that is wonderful. But I think to say somehow that instrumentation is displeasing to God is to have a misreading of, of the relation between the Old and New Testaments. And uh, I think instruments are created by God, and they are, can be used appropriately and wonderfully to accompany God's people in their praise and, and it should be resounding. And um, now I will say this just as a byway of practical. As we move forward as a church, we have made a, a, I mean, an intentional decision. I've led us in this way that, that uh, while the piano uh, may be loud and um, at times, or instruments, we want the singing of God's people to be primary. So in a lot of churches today, you have such a amplification and a dimming of the lights, um, and this is happening locally uh, every Sunday, and, and you have such a loud uh, production up front on the platform that literally you, you can't even hear anyone sing in, in, the, in the chairs. And we never want to get to that point. But I want to encourage you that we can have loud instrumentation up here as long as we have, say, on a Sunday morning like today, and I want to push you a little bit, you can sing louder. So, so in other words, it's not an either-or. We want the voices to be primary, but, but we are told here that there is to be resounding music. Uh, another significant moment I remember as a teenager at church I was listening in those days to probably a lot of music I shouldn't have been listening to, and uh, my parents didn't know I was listening to, and, you know, a lot of music that was, you know, was rock music, and it was not all rock music is bad, but a lot of the stuff I was listening to was bad, and I just liked the, I liked the beat, I liked the music, it was loud, I liked it. I remember distinctly one morning, I was a teenager, I don't know, maybe 14 and over at what was First Baptist Church, they still had an organ. Yes, an organ. And, I, and, and a particular organist, I won't mention her name, was playing that Sunday. And she pulled out all the stops when she played Holy, Holy, Holy. And my chest cavity was reverberating with, with the sound of the organ as people sang. And people were singing. And I know that in the church there were some, oh, that was too loud. She plays too loud, too loud. Needs to be quiet. And I'm telling you, the loudness of that organ that day was used of God. I'm not overstating the case. Was used of God. The resounding music helped pierce through my dull heart and mind. He really is holy. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. In other words, the resounding organ music that, that resonated in the room and was powerful, appropriately accompanied and helped illustrate the truth that God is awesome. And the reality of who he, who he is shakes you to the core. So accompaniment in music is is very important, and I, I just wanted you to notice there that there's instrumentation, accompaniment, and it is resounding. It doesn't mean it's always resounding. There's quiet, 
there's, there's major key, there's minor key, but if anyone ever tells you that, that um, there shouldn't be loud, joyful, honoring, reverent in the church, you take them right to Psalm 92, verse 3, and say, but the text says there should be resounding music. So, there. I got that out of my system. Um, I, 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 I do love music. I love God's praise. And, and this is a difficult area where the church has struggled in the last 20 or 30 years. But we tend to kind of swing one extreme or another. And I, I, we're always good when we stick to the text. So the content is thanks and praise. The timing is morning and evening. The accompaniment is mus- varied musical instruments. These skilled, I will say skilled, uh, because I imagine it takes some skill to play, play a 10-string lute and a harp and, and a lyre. And, and so other, other places, too, in, this, in the Psalms, we're told there is to be some skill. And um, we should appreciate in the church those who give themselves to the discipline of of studying, and uh, some here are taking some lessons, and, and one uh, who's sitting in the back, unnamed, but he, he said to me, yeah, I'm trying to find time to practice, and yeah, I mean, that, if you've ever tried to play piano, or that's the thing, I mean, it sounds great in theory, but then you start thinking about how many hours it takes, it's, so you're sitting there, uh, it, it's not easy, so we should thank God for uh, those who play regularly, and and, and help us. So uh, it should be uh, varied, it should be skilled and resounding. And lastly, on these opening four verses, the, the general tenor of this kind of praise, notice, is glad and joyful. You, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the work of your hands. I will sing for joy. You've made me glad. Um, so there are times when we sing in a minor key. Um, and I try to pick hymns, songs from time to time that express the reality of living in a fallen world, the pains and sorrows of the human heart. Um, not every time you come into church do you want to sing that old hymn, I'm so happy and here's the reason why Jesus took my burden all away. Anybody know that old hymn? Um, it's not a bad thing, but I always thought, uh, I'm not sure the Christian life is quite that cheery <laughs> or happy-go-lucky. Um, sorry if that's one of your favorites, but I don't think that one's a keeper because I'm so happy. We, we do have a happiness and a joy, but, but it is in this life, as we're learning in the Bible, it's mingled with much sorrow. So, so this gladness is not a... Is not a passing gladness it's a deep gladness it's a profound gladness and there is there is also time for us to have um, songs that reflect our sadness or grief but generally our praise should be characterized by gladness and joy and again if if we're in the presence of God with his people and, and we're never glad and we never have any joy probably forgetting just who he is, who we are, and what he's done for us. Probably. There's a time when we're carrying a burden in our heart or grieving, and, and, and even in the praises of God, our heart is sad. And, and God knows that. He is compassionate, our shepherd. But generally, we have reason to be glad and to sing for joy. Amen? 
All right, let's try to move quickly now to verses 5 through 14. So the, the, I wanted to spend most of our time on those opening four verses um, because I think they are unique. They do instruct our praise. But now in verses 5 through 14, the psalmist gives the reasons or the grounds for the Lord's praise. And in this section, you can divide it up between verses 5 and 9 and verses 10 and 14. God, the, the psalmist praises God for the works of his hands. Verse 4, the works of his hands. Verse 5, how great are your works, O Lord, O Yahweh. So you see works in verse 4. You see works in verse 5. So verses 5 and following primarily are praising God for uh, particular aspects of his works. And in verses 5 through 9, and this is shocking a little bit at first, but in verses 5 through 9, God is praised for the work of condemning the wicked. He's praised for it. He's praised for it. Verses 5 through 9, his thoughts, God's thoughts are very deep, verse 5. But then the, the rest of that whole section, a senseless man does not know, a fool does not understand this. What? What doesn't he understand? That when the wicked flourished like grass and all the workers of iniquity blossomed. Let's just pause there. That's what's happening in our world right now. You look around the world and you see, wow, who's, who's really prospering? I mean, what, who's really has it generally easy in this world? And what's, I mean, they're, they're making oodles of money. Not that a believer can't make lots of money. But the point is, generally speaking, in this world right now, if you look around the world, who has, the, has it best? Who's, who's having an easy go of it? It isn't, doesn't tend to be your godly people. Why? Because they are striving with sin. They're fighting against sin. They are, they are obeying God's ways, which is counter to the world. Following Christ is like taking up your cross. So it seems right now that the wicked are flourishing like grass, on a really wet summer like we had this past year. Sprouting up everywhere. Blossoming like dandelion blooms. Seems like they're just everywhere. But a senseless man and a fool have not considered and don't understand this, that when the wicked flourished, when workers in iniquity blossomed, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. In other words, there's a purpose in this outworking of history. There's a fearful, awesome purpose. There's a purpose that they might. It's not, it's not random that there's a purpose in this destruction. God is on high, not the wicked, verse 8. And the wicked and those who live apart from God and dishonor him are his enemies and they will perish and they will be scattered. This is Romans 9, 21 through 24. Really, this is the theology of Romans 9 here in Psalm 92. Quickly, I'll just read that for you. Romans 9 is, you know, many people struggle with that passage about the sovereignty of God. And it is frightening and it is fearful that God uh, raised up Pharaoh and hardened his heart justly to demonstrate his power. But in Romans 9, verse 21, Paul says, Does not the potter, that is God, have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use 
and another for dishonorable? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction? That's Psalm 92. A census man has not considered this. A fool has not considered this. That when the wicked flourished like grass and the iniquity, workers of iniquity blossomed, it was so that they might be destroyed. Vessels prepared for Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Romans 9.22. Wow. Wow. That is lofty truth. That history is not random. History is not chaos. Men and women have minds. They have wills. Men and women who rebel against God know what they are doing. They are choosing to do what they do, and and God is preparing vessels of wrath for destruction. There's a sovereign plan in it all for God to demonstrate his power, his righteousness for the sake of his glory. One of God's works is the preparing of vessels of wrath for destruction. And no, he is not unjust. That's Paul's argument in Romans 9. How dare we say that he's unjust? He's God. And there is no wickedness in him. But he is active and sovereign over all things, including times when it appears that the wicked are flourishing like grass and workers of iniquity are blossoming. So in verses 5 through 9, Part of our praise of God is that he's sovereign over all things, even history unfolding and the seeming flourishing of the wicked. Secondly, in this section, verses 10 through 15, God is praised for his work of blessing the righteous. So in verses 5 through 9, his work of condemning the wicked. In verses 10 through 15, his work of blessing the righteous. And it's a wonderful passage, isn't it? The psalmist says, you have raised up my horn like that of a wild ox. That's not language I know you would use. If any of us said, God's raised up my horn like that of a wild ox, we'd be looking at each other a little bit like, okay. Um, What does a horn have to do with? Well, horn is often associated with salvation, right? Horn of salvation, of strength, of power. And and what the psalmist is saying, I am a weak Sinner, myself, that you, O God, have set your mercy upon and you have raised up me up. You have, you have raised up my strength like that of a wild ox. I, I bet a wild ox is pretty strong. I've never met one, but I really don't want to meet one, especially not, well, as long as he's behind bars at a zoo. But I don't want to meet him on a field. Why? Because he's really strong and, and uh, with those horns, he can probably hurt you a little bit and then some. So, so he, the psalmist is saying, oh God, you have raised me up. It may look like the wicked are strong. It may look like the righteous are weak and downcast and trodden. But in fact, God has raised them up. God has uh, anoints his people with fresh oil. The idea, their blessing of being set apart. And the psalmist says, my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes. You know, again, here you can think of the Lord Jesus praying this psalm. And certainly it's true of him that he has enemies, but we have enemies too, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. You have enemies that you can't even see, and they're very strong. And in comparison to them, you seem as nothing. 
But God grants to his people in Christ that we will ultimately look exultantly upon our foes. I don't know if at the last judgment, God will cause these evil demonic spirits that that troubled us all our days. I don't know if God will cause them to be visible, but I kind of think so. I, I, I have no grounds for that other than this concept that in the last, that we at this time in Christ, who were so weak and subject to the onslaught of the evil one, protected by God, but that we will have the joy of seeing just how powerful these evil spirits were and how God caused us by faith in Christ to triumph. We will triumph by God's grace, not because of any of our strength of our own. And, and the righteous flourish, verse 12. I referenced this this morning, but flourish like the palm tree. Palm tree sounds kind of nice right now. Um, you know, I mean, I love winter, but I'm torn because um, palm tree sounds kind of nice too on a sandy beach, warm water and I don't know, but the palm trees would be in that part of the world, an oasis. Jericho was a place that had palm trees. It was warm enough there, not far from Jerusalem. And the idea here is that the righteous will flourish like a palm tree in a in a in a in a grove and in a, in a near water, or like a cedar in Lebanon, a towering tree. Think of think of one of the redwoods in California, just thriving year after year after year planted in the house of the Lord. God brings his people close to him. We flourish as we worship the Lord. And verse 14, this abundant life that God gives to his people carries on even through old age. Doesn't mean that in our old age physically we'll necessarily be strong, but it means that at the very point in life when the wicked are despairing, if they're in their right mind because their physical strength is gone, that God's people go from strength to strength. And I have had the privilege of knowing some older men and women whose bodies were failing and yet in their hearts they were, I think some of your translation says they will be green and full of sap. And the sap there means that the tree is healthy. A tree that doesn't have much sap is dying, but they're full of sap. In other words, they're full of life. You think of uh, my my family this this afternoon suggested... um, uh, Maple syrup and, and, and sap. And I, I, don't, I don't think there's any maple trees, uh, and they weren't suggesting there's any maple trees in Israel. But that idea, we understand that, that come a few months from now, or not that long from now, um, that the trees will, maple trees will have this amazing process where they'll just pull all this water and, and it'll be sap full. And that sap is, is promising life in the spring. And, and this is true of God's people. So God is praised for his work of condemning the wicked, and God is praised for his work of blessing the righteous, causing us to flourish with life. What did Jesus say? I came so that they might have life and have it abundantly. They shall be rich or fat, verse 14, and fresh, full of sap. And... Uh, That, that is, that, I like that line I told you this morning. They shall be fat and full of sap. But it, it's not a bad thing in that case. It's a good thing, meaning full of life, full of substance. And uh, in verse 15, God is to be praised, thirdly, on this section, 
for the, his, the rightness of God in all his works. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. In all of his works, including condemning the wicked and blessing the righteous, God is upright, he does not sin, he does no, he does no wrong, and there is no unrighteousness in him. In all of his works, no unrighteousness. And this is why it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to his name, the Most High, to declare his loving kindness in the morning and his faithfulness by night. Let's pray. So God, we do, we, we praise you tonight and we thank you that we can gather. I am so grateful for my brothers and sisters who have worked uh, with me to to keep and to maintain this evening time of worship. But we pray that it may truly be an expression of our hearts and not just something on Lord's Day that we have to do. Um, may it never be that. Whether, Whenever we praise you, may, may it be because it's good. It's good to go to the house of the Lord. It's good to praise the Lord. And we pray that you would move in the hearts of your people to soften our hearts in these days and that we would acknowledge your works and long to see you praised in Jesus name. Amen.